So allowing the body, mind, and heart to rest. Just coming into this present moment experience. Noticing the breath, entering and leaving the nose. Noticing the breath as it touches the back of the throat. You might notice the ribcage expanding and contracting with each breath. You might notice the rising and falling of the abdomen as you inhale and exhale. Noticing the shoulders rising and falling with each breath. While resting with the breath, you might also notice sensations of clothing against the shoulders. The arms resting against the body. hands resting against the body or touching each other. There might be sensations of clothing against the back. The weight of the body against the cushion or chair, mat or floor. Sensations of clothing against the legs. Noticing the feet against the mat or the floor. There might also be sensations arising from the back of the neck. The cheeks of the face. Noticing any sensation arising from the top of the head. And while resting there with the breath and the body, you might also notice the sounds of the present moment. The sound of the cars, traffic outside very gentle hum of the projector, the sound of my voice. Just rest, noticing the entire canopy of sound.
because they are so related, they feed into each other. So when you're practicing loving kindness and then you move to the practices of compassion, loving kindness continues to unfold with compassion. They resonate with each other, those qualities. Uh, so it's quite a beautiful uh, practice. They're also known uh, as the immeasurables because you can never cultivate too much and you can never run out. If you're really giving pure loving kindness, there's always more to give. If you're really giving pure compassion, there's always more to give, like that and so forth. So you never, it never really uh, drains the well, so to speak. And I'll talk more about that. I see some questions. I see some questions in the mind moving. So hold on to those questions, please. Answer those. Okay. Um, it'll be worth retrieving my book for this. Sorry. <laughs> I wanted to read the Metta Sutta, and it's worth reading. Uh, so, a sutta is a teaching uh, given from the Buddha to his principal disciples. And it's interestingly enough, the Pali word sutta has the same term or the root as uh, sutra, the medical term. And it actually means the same thing, a melting together, bringing together. But in Buddhist terminology, a sutta is the bringing together of the Buddha's heart and mind to the heart and mind of his students. So the Buddha happened to be expounding on loving kindness, luckily for us. And one of his students said, but Buddha, what do you mean by loving kindness? How does one practice that? So the Buddha says, monks and nuns, this is what should be done. By those who are skilled in goodness and know the path of peace, let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they be weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, the medium, the short or the small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading through the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, I love that part, he didn't people fall asleep in meditation. One should sustain this recollection, 
This is said to be the sublime abiding. And he concludes by this really beautiful paragraph, very short. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is freed from repetitive existence. He said a lot there in two pages. <laughs> So, in ancient times, there was a man who's most well known in uh, the Sufi tradition, but he's well loved in Buddhism as well. In Buddhism. Uh, his name was the Mullah Nasruddin. Some of you might have heard of the Mullah Nasruddin. He's, he's kind of a jokester, a prankster. It's up for debate whether he really existed. But he was known to be something of a genius. And as a genius, he was often asked to sit as a court justice to preside over a criminal court. And such was the case one hot summer day, the mullah's holding court, kind of a slow day. Suddenly, a man walks into the courtroom wearing nothing but his underwear. And he says, mullah, 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 please, you have to help me. I've been robbed. And the mullah says, well, did this just happen to you right here in the village? And the man says, yes, yes, they've taken all my clothes and everything I own. They're getting away. You have to stop that. Mullah says, well, are those your underwear you're wearing? And the man kind of shocked. And he says, well, yes, these are my underwear. But they took everything else I own. They're getting away. You have to stop. Help me. And Mullah says, well, they're obviously not from this village because we do things thoroughly. <laughs> and so I just kind of tell that little humorous anecdotes, not only to lighten things up a little bit, that sutta is pretty deep, but also really to bring it back to point out how thorough the Buddha was in this amazing discourse. He says, in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there be, there may be weak or strong, the great, the mighty, the medium, the short, the small, the seen, the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They're all beings for the He goes on to explain about uh, emotional reactivity and how that clouds that uh, reacting out of anger, but pushing them too to be bad and their needs. And so as this presentation unfolds, I'm going to be outlining a practice, a very traditional practice uh, that's used to cultivate that type of loving kindness. That we can actually extend loving kindness to ourselves, uh, to loved ones, and that's generally where our circle of compassionate care stops, usually. Ourselves, our loved ones, our family, our friends. So this practice allows that circle of compassionate care to expand, to include people we don't know, people we don't like and eventually including the world. Okay, and it all starts with this phrase. All beings want happiness and want to avoid suffering. And this is arguably the very DNA of human experience. We all have this drive, right? We all want to be more comfortable with it. We all want to have good life. We all want to avoid discomfort. That's the way. That was the, actually the Buddha's first truth, is that there is suffering. Uh, 
and that we want to push that away and that causes actually no suffering. So this is actually at the heart of many of these early teachings. So we, when one comes to a practice like the one I just described from the Metta Sutta, one generally starts by contemplating this phrase. And it can be done if you're going to meditate, maybe for a few minutes before you start meditating, you might uh, get on some comfortable, comfy pants and tie them. And, or you might light a stick of incense, or just get ready to do the practice, and you can start contemplating how all beings want practice and want to avoid suffering. Now, I want to add here that we all know that that drive, that is our, at our very heart and soul, does get horribly distorted sometimes. Throughout history, we can see examples of that. Uh, but still, when we peel back that distortion, even then, we can see those beings who cause great suffering in the world are moving forward with that energy, moving forward with that desire for better. Okay. Now, after the Buddha gave the eleven, I'm sorry, after the Buddha gave that beautiful metta discourse, he also provided the eleven benefits of metta. And so I'll just unpack these very quickly. I mean, why? Why should we do this, right? So there are some benefits. The Buddha had that question too from his disciples. Why? Why would we do this? So he said, there are 11 benefits that you will reap from this type of practice very soon after starting the practice. Uh, you will sleep easily and wake easily. And this happens not only from metta practice, honestly. It also happens from your general mindfulness meditation practice. Uh, so you sleep easily and wake easily because you know that voice up here when you put your head on the pillow and oh, I should have said this at that business meeting, or I should have done that, or I need to call that person tomorrow, I need to do this yesterday. That voice tends to start to subside. And so we can fall asleep easier with a practice like this. And you know, it's that same voice that's there when you wake up in the morning. Your eyes open and immediately that same voice is Oh, I have to cook for breakfast, and I have to do this, and I need to go to that meeting, and I need to go to the store, right? So that, is, that makes for challenging to wake up. So that voice, again, is subsiding. So we can move into the day in a lot more peaceful state. You will have pleasant dreams. Okay, this is so because when we move through our day uh, before having a meditation practice, or if we haven't meditated, uh, we might encounter things that cause stress. Uh, even just images on the TV can be very stressful sometimes. And so we, we're not mindful of how that impacts us. And so at night we go to bed and our body, our mind, our heart needs to work through those stresses. And so that's a nightmare. And that's why we have nightmares, so, just so that we can unravel or work through uh, stresses and tensions that we've held like that. So that happens less and less because we can, uh, we're more open to the present moment, we're more embracing of what's arising in the present moment through the practice of that. So nightmares happen less and less frequently. People will love you. I'm going to come back to number four. I have a story about people who love you. So I'll come back to number four towards the end of the talk. Devas will, and animals will love you and protect you. Okay. Devas in Buddhist cosmology and mythology are guardian angels. 
And so if you don't buy into the idea of guardian angels, that's fine. You don't have to believe in Buddhist cosmology to do these practices. In fact, one of my real passions is to make these practices as secular as possible. But I do try to make them accessible to people from all walks of life. So uh, what this is really pointing at, five and six, is that we become happier with the practice of loving kindness. We become more content. And so as we grow happier, as we grow more content, uh, our life starts to unfold in a, well, it seems like a more effortless way. There's less drag, if you will. And so it almost seems sometimes as if there's a guardian angel guiding you down the path. Just because there's, we're more open to the present moment. External dangers will not harm you. Okay, here's where I have to put the warning label on the presentation. <laughs> if you're in a house that catches fire, don't start meditating. <laughs> or if you're walking down the street and you go down, you make a long turn down a dark alley, Somebody points a gun at you. That's not the time. So, but what this is pointing at is that the more we practice these types of practices, honestly, the less we find ourselves in dangerous positions like that. So, and that is, these are all kind of a gradual unfolding, particularly the last six, seven, eight. Uh, we, we become, it's a gradual thing. So it's not like we do this for a week and suddenly we can develop a superman. Uh, but, it, but gradually, we start to find ourselves in less and less situations that might cause us harm. Your face will be radiant. <laughs> Your mind will be serene. Um, I have no way to attest this to you here today. Uh, but I've been doing mental practice for many, many years. And I've noticed a difference in the levels of You will die unconfused. And this is so because we do cultivate this sense of serenity. And so as we practice, as we become more serene in the mind and the heart and so forth, we can bring that serenity with us to our path. Number 11, you will be reborn in happy realms. Okay, here's that Buddhist cosmology idea again. Uh, so according to the very traditional Buddhist mythologies and cosmology, there is rebirth. And if you bring that serenity with you to your deathbed, your rebirth is said to be in a happier realm, a higher realm. Higher. Um, if you don't buy into the idea of rebirth, you don't buy into the idea of reincarnation, that's fine. Actually, the Pali word for rebirth, and that is sometimes translated often as repetitive existence. And that's actually how I retranslated at the end of that uh, Mensa Sutta. There will be no more repetitive existence. Uh, so when you look at it that way, okay, so we fill this present moment with loving kindness. And that predicates the next moment. That's that repetitive existence. So you will be reborn in a happier moment. And then you fill that present moment with loving kindness, and that predicates the next one. And so then it becomes a snowball. And so that we start to be reborn moment after moment in happier realms. So that's how I prefer to interpret that. Um, but it works either way. Uh, but that makes it 
for me, that makes that teaching uh, more pragmatic. Yeah. Now, of course, we can't control our outside external forces. Right? Somebody might you know, start going crazy, yelling bad things at us. We can't control that. But we can control our response. And so the more we uh, fill the present moment with love and kindness, the less likely we are to be reactive when something like that happens. So here is the loving kindness practice, the practice of metta. And so th these are what's known as metta phrases. And they're written kind of like aphorisms. But they really hold more weight than that. They're a little more weighty. So in the practice of metta, one would come to a meditation, they would cultivate that silence, similar to the way we did just a few moments ago when we started the talk, right? We went into that silence. Uh, and so one cultivates that silent, open-hearted space. And then one brings these phrases of love and kindness first to your own heart. You start with your own heart. You offer the phrase to your heart as if you were offering your heart a precious gift. Very, very rare. Sometimes my students like to say they, they envision themselves they're taking themselves to the spa. They're doing something really beautiful for yourself. It's, it's really a, a, an act of self-care at this point. So you offer the phrase to your heart. Now when one offers that phrase to their heart, let's use the first one, may I be happy. You offer the phrase, may I be happy to your heart. Then one visualizes what their life would look and feel like if that phrase was completely reflective of their life circumstance. 100%. Happy all of the time what that would look like, what that would feel like. So you offer that to your heart. Now, there's generally one of three responses. It could be a mix, but I'll outline it as one of three for now. There'll be an opening. The heart goes, oh, wow, this is amazing. There'll be like, feel like a warmth, a glow, like that. That could be one of the responses. Uh, you might bring the phrase to your heart and there'll be a resistance, a, a closing down. That'll never happen to me, I can't. You know, I would be happy that X, Y, and Z is happening right now, I can't. Those are resistances. Or you might start falling asleep, that's another type of resistance. So we, we don't try to change that. We don't try to push the resistance away or even try to work through it at all. We hold the resistance in awareness. Hold it. The way you hold the breath and hold that resistance and feel what that resistance feels like. Because now I'll get a little bit ahead of myself here. So spoiler alert. Uh, but it, uh, if you can feel that resistance in the meditation, when you move out in your, in your everyday life experience and you encounter somebody being generous to you, you encounter somebody being kind to you, or showing you loving kindness, you'll feel that resistance. You'll feel how you close that. Oh, I don't need to do that. I can accept this generosity just as it is. And so incrementally, slowly teasing apart the resistances in day-to-day -day life, not during the meditation, but in day-to-day -day life, our heart slowly starts to open. And suddenly, however long it takes, a few weeks, a few months, a few years, but suddenly we realize, oh, I'm more open. I'm more receptive to, to kindness than I was. A year ago, six months ago. 
So that's how the practice works. Now, there might be a third response. There might be no feeling. You might bring this phrase to your heart. No feeling. That's fine. That happens sometimes. It's not that you're doing the practice wrong. It's just that we're now that we're planting the seeds of loving kindness. And eventually, those seeds do start to bear fruit. And it might happen in very unexpected ways. It could be that you're walking on the street, and all of a sudden you feel kindness for the strangers. Like that. And so it could be very sudden. It could be unexpected. Or it might happen in the science of meditation as well. But it could happen at any time. Okay, so I'll just go through. Well, yeah, I'll go through the phrases very quickly. May I be happy, well, and at peace. Uh, that's a very traditional phrase. I kind of use a, a different phrase for the first one. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, may I open to things just as they are. May I experience the world opening to me just as I am. May I welcome whatever arises. Now, these are the uh, phrases that I got from my teacher quite some time ago from the Dzogchen Tibetan tradition. Uh, but they're becoming more and more popular in other traditions, namely the Theravada tradition, the Thai tradition. Uh, they're becoming quite popular, and so I see them popping up. I think they are, may I be happy, may I be at ease, may I be at well, may I be well. Uh, I think those are the ones that I've seen before in the Theravada tradition. Uh, not better, not worse, they operate in the same way. They're just, I, I prefer these phrases because I, I feel that they really uh, get at the opening quality of loving kindness, this open and embracing of the present moment. So I feel that they really get these phrases really accurately. That's why I but I did list a few of the other phrases that I sometimes see, uh, and I use the top one actually, I really like that one. May I live a life of peace. Uh, may I live without struggle. May our life be filled with love. Uh, may we live without effort. So, so it's all about opening and embracing the uh, loving kindness practice. And so it unfolds in stages. We start with ourselves. And the way I offer this when I teach it is that I generally go two to three weeks per stage. Now some teachers do the whole, all six stages in one sitting. That can be, it usually takes about an hour and 15 minutes. It's a long practice and, and quite involved. And I, I, that can be nice, it can be effective too, but I find it much more effective to spend a couple of weeks with each stage that way you really allow each phrase to get into the heart and really you start to notice, it's almost like you're, you're putting worms in the heart. You start to notice how the phrases move through the heart and, and create that change. So it's worth spending the time with each stage. It just makes it, you have to have a, a longer sight that way. Say, okay, in three months I'll be finished this practice rather than in two hours. Like so you have to have that kind of long-term vision for that. So it starts with the self, the benefactor. I'm going to unpack all of these in a moment. A loved one, a stranger, a perceived enemy, and then finally to the entire world. Now I want to talk a little bit about uh, the perceived or the, the obstacles of the obstacles of love and kindness. So first we have the near enemy. It's considered the near enemy. 
of loving kindness. The first is desire. Why desire? Well, desire is considered a near enemy of loving kindness because it can look a lot like loving kindness, right? When we have a desire-based relationship with somebody that's very healthy and normal, and we feel that connection with that person, but generally those uh, relationships are based on reciprocation. I love you and I'll care for you if, as long as you continue to love me and care for me. So there's that reciprocation element to desire-based relationships. But Meta, as I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, doesn't have that basis of reciprocation. You want the other person's happiness regardless of, of who they are to you, regardless of your relationship. And then, uh, so, sorry, we, balance out our experience of desire uh, by the practices of generosity and gratitude. Why? Because desire arises in the human nervous system as an experience of lacking something. And so when we practice generosity, we're actually taking stock in the things that we have that we can give. So it counters that experience of lack. Now you don't have to give your house, your car, your bank account, or anything like that. Uh, you can give a compliment, a flower, a poem, a song, a smile, a bit of your time. Those are all acts of generosity. And each act of generosity counters our experience of design, our experience of life. Uh, and then gratitude. Again, we're taking stock in the things that are wonderful in our life and we practice gratitude. Keeping a gratitude list, by the way, is a really amazing practice. It's really amazing. You only have to write down one or two things every so often. And it can be the same one or two things every time you do it. But it, it really is, it really can be a beautiful practice. What I've noticed when I keep gratitude lists is I start looking for things in, throughout my day to write on the list. And so naturally gratitude starts to arise. Looking for things to be grateful for, it's just there. Love practice. Okay. The far enemy of metta is aversion. And this aversion arises for different people in different ways. I've listed a few of the typical uh, culprits here. Anger, fear, grief, disappointment, and guilt. Now, these are normal, natural human experiences. And so I, I often uh, find people want to vilify these experiences, but they are, we're all human, we all experience this. Uh, and so, if one goes into a loving kindness practice and suddenly you feel anger or aversion towards the person you're extending loving kindness to, that happens later in the practice when we practice with the perceived enemy. Uh, so if you feel that aversion arise, I recommend stepping out of the practice and moving into a meditation on forgiveness. Now there are guided meditations very similar to the meta meditations but they're designed to cultivate forgiveness. I don't have time to outline one of those practices here today, but if anybody's interested, I have a few on my website that I'm happy, and they're all for free. Everything, almost everything, except the two books that I've written, everything on my website is for free. So uh, you can access all kinds of guided meditations at your leisure, and I'll talk, I can do that out of the presentation. So balancing our experience of aversion through forgiveness. Now, I just want to add there that forgiveness never means condoning bad behavior. 
so there's a difference there. You can forgive somebody, but we don't say that you're, you're, when you punched me in the jaw and knocked out my teeth, that that's okay that you did that. Just an example. <laughs> Uh, but but we are what we're doing there is we're pulling the stone of resentment and anger out of our heart. We're pulling it back. And then we can move into the present moment in a much lighter way. Uh, we're ready to embrace the present moment of our lives. Should we do a little bit of loving kindness practice? Let's let's have a free sample, huh? So I'll just ring the bell. And this really is just going to be a few moments. Uh, again, just to be aware, any opening, any resistance, all neutral to you. It's all normal. It's all natural. Whatever arises. So there's nothing. If it feels like an obstacle, that's also part of the practice. If it feels like something's good, warm, part of the practice. Like that. Nothing happening, also part of the practice. So just observe. And if this is really just to allow you to feel each phrase very quickly. So again, just coming into the present moment. present moment experience, we'll offer the phrases of loving kindness to our own heart. Briefly imagining or getting a feel for what life might look or feel like if each phrase was completely reflective of our life circumstance. May I open to things just as they are. May I experience the world opening to me just as I am.
May I welcome whatever arises. of the loving-kindness phrases. And so, when one comes to a metta practice or a loving-kindness practice, again, coming into the present moment, breath and body, we're getting the sounds. One does that for about 10 minutes or so, and then bringing the metta phrases, one, into the heart, may I be happy, and then one usually sits with that phrase for about a minute. So quite a, quite a bit longer than what we did here. May I be happy. And then allowing the mind to really move with that. And then after a minute, may I be healthy. And really allowing the feeling to be there. And the feeling can fluctuate. It might be, may I be happy, may I be healthy, not much feeling. Then you go through each phrase and then you come back around and start again at the top. Now there might be a different, you might feel different the second time. So it does keep evolving and changing. Okay. So then we would move on to loving kindness for the benefactor. Now, this is kind of an optional stage to the practice. Uh, if one is, is really um, feeling a challenge connecting with the experience of loving kindness. So you go through two to three weeks of loving kindness for the self, but it seems to be a lot of resistance, a lot of uh, you know pushing and things like that. One that can then go to loving kindness for the benefactor. So I often get asked the question, well, what is a benefactor? What does that mean? So I'll just give an example of someone I use for a So uh, a benefactor, by the way, is somebody who has given to our life with no sense of asking for return, no strings attached, just given out of the kindness of their life. And I actually only have maybe one or two that really fall into that category. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm unlucky. But uh, the one that I really gravitate to is, it was a high school teacher of mine. So when I was 15, my mother grew very ill. And uh, I needed to find somebody who could take me to learn how to drive. That's very stressful for an American 15-year-old boy, not getting a driver's license. So I was relating the story to my high school friend. And my teacher must have overheard me because a few moments later she comes over and she offers to take me to learn how to drive, to teach me to drive. Uh, and she met me, you know, two to three days a week after school for about an hour, maybe longer sometimes. Now her name was Miss Business, I hope. And uh, uh, she had two teenage children of her own, and a family of her own. Quite certain the last thing Miss Hood wanted to do was to spend another hour with another teenager a couple of days a week after school. There she was. And so I never forgot that. And so I remember that warmth that she extended 
no strings attached to them, what could she possibly hope for? Uh, and so we endow the loving kindness now with that love. So when we send out the loving kindness to the next few stages, we envision that warmth on those phrases when we send them to others and when we continue sending the phrases to ourselves. So we're using that as fuel for the practice. Matter for the loved one. Okay, again, you have to be aware of desire. We don't want to use desire-based relationships for this. You can use a family member, a dog or a cat also works, a pet, everything a pet for that. As long as you have that heartfelt connection with that other person. Okay, meta for the strangers. So here, remember at the beginning of the presentation, so long ago, I mentioned uh, that we were going to be expanding our care and compassion, our circle of care and compassion, right? So again, for the self, that's generally there, more or less. For the loved one, that's generally there, right? But to the strangers, we don't often think of strangers as being a part of our family, right? Being a part of our tribe. So here, we're extending that loving kindness so that our care and compassion can include strangers. And so here, the, the, the obstacle that generally arises is this experience of indifference. One comes to the meditation, well, why should I be doing this for this person? I don't know this person. You know, why do I spend all this energy and time? Those types of feelings are also boredom, which is kind of an expression of indifference. Boredom starts to arise. So a really great way of uh, kind of short-circuiting that tendency is to get curious about what that feels like. So if you feel any, you can do this anytime. Hope none of you are bored now, but if you are, you can ask yourself, what does this boredom feel like? Because once you've done that, you've gotten curious about that feeling. And the curiosity and the boredom can't coexist. Right? Because what does boredom feel like in my body, in my heart, in my mind? What am I feeling like that? Boredom goes away because you've drawn attention to it. And then you can move back into the practice. Now, by this time in the, in the meditation, if one is really taking this as a serious practice, they're doing two to three weeks on loving kindness for the self, two to three weeks on loving kindness for the loved one, that's over a month of good, consistent meditation practice. So there's a momentum moving into this stage of the practice. One would have started feeling those 11 benefits already. After six weeks, for sure, some of those benefits are starting to bear fruit. So with that momentum, one can more easily move into this stage of the practice. One gets, you know, a little, one, one starts to see the reason behind it, like that, and feeling that care for it. Meta for the perceived enemy. So here's where it gets quite hot sometimes. So if you're really going to take this up as a practice, again, now one would have been practicing for about two months. So those benefits are really bearing fruit, and things are really open. So that's good. You have that in your toolbox. Also, you don't want to start with somebody who really hurt you the first time through this practice. We all have people in our life who have caused us transgressions, part of the human experience. So we don't want to use the, the really hot ones. 
But use use somebody who you know. There's some tension. Um, I used to use. I still like my own practice. I use politicians because I find that you know. Well, nowadays, there's that's pretty hot too. But somebody somebody for who it's not that hot. Now, if it gets hot, if you get into the practice for loving kindness for the perceived enemy, and you find that it just gets very hot, overwhelming. And you'll know when that happens when you're tightening up the body's tightening up the jaw and you might start getting tears or hot face. Uh, then come back to the breath, come back to the body, start again at the practice at the very beginning. Now if you want, after you regulate, after you self-regulate back into the present moment, you can move into the practice again if you want to try again. But if it gets to that too hot stage more than once, that's it. You should finish with it. Even if it was only after five minutes of practice. That's enough. Because what, what tends to start to happen is that you start to move into that too hot zone over and over again. Uh, a certain resistance to meditation itself starts to form. Like, like calcifying bone. And, and once that happens, it's really difficult to meditate in any practice. So, so always move with a feather-like touch with a healthy dose of self-compassion. And, and to, to go very slowly into, the, into a practice that it perceived And again, going through the other stages first really now, aversion may arise, and, and so if that happens, do exactly as I described. Come back to the present moment, and then move in again. And you're done. So, we use the phrase perceived enemy. Now, this is, there's a reason for that phrase. And this is really out of, uh, really out of the orthodox uh, psychology, Buddhist psychology. Uh, According to Buddhist psychology, I like to put it on that because I don't have to take blame for this teaching. <laughs> we'll see why in a moment. Uh, we ever, actually never experienced an enemy. And actually, Carl Jung was, was really a proponent of this as well. We never actually experienced an enemy. We only actually ever experience our own discomfort. And we project that discomfort out onto other people, onto other situations. And then we struggle against that discomfort. We think we're struggling against the person or the, or the situation, but we're really struggling against our own discomfort projected out. Now I often get the question here, well, what about the person who punched me in the jaw, right? Is that, is that my enemy? Well, that person who really transgressed against us, that person just is a good, susceptible hook for our projection. So just an easy person to project that discomfort onto. So, and I'll, I'll kind of walk it out in slow motion. So the person comes over to me, right? The person who punched me in the jaw, for example. And, and I see him coming and my body gets tense, you know, like remembering how I had to go to the dentist and maybe I even wince, you know. That's all my own physical discomfort arising in relationship to the proximity of this person. And then I push that discomfort out onto that person because of, of that past incident. But it's still my own discomfort. At the end of the day, it's still my own tension in my own body. It was the great uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, I love this quote. I use it all the time, so forgive me if you've heard it. Uh, it was, <laughs> um, 
All of the devils and demons in the world arise from the human heart. And that's the only battlefield where the world should be found. Beautiful. Pointing at that exact teaching. You can thank me for that in person. <laughs> okay, the final stage of the loving kindness practice is loving kindness for the world. This is something of a bit of a reprieve I found in my own practices with loving kindness. Because the, the perceived enemy can get quite challenging. And then we move through that after a couple of weeks. And then we can extend loving kindness to everyone. Which is really, I, I find that to be quite beautiful. Maybe because my parents were children of the 60s. But I, I really love this stage of the practice. And so how I do this, I'll just give an example. Because uh, I think this stage of the practice does require some creativity. And people do like uh, people I work with like to take creative liberties with it. I think that's good. Uh, so we offer loving kindness to the whole world, including ourselves. We don't leave ourselves out. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. It has a timer on it, maybe. Anyway, I can do without it. <laughs> so, um, loving kindness for the world, right? So, how I do this is uh, as a benefit of my job, I often get to talk in theaters, large theaters, on cruise ships, uh, giving talks on Buddhism and mindfulness. And so, as a result of that, I talk in, in these large theaters, maybe it seats well, about a thousand people or so. Now, in my meta practice, I envision myself standing on the stage in that theater, but now the theater holds the whole world. And so it's really important here to make sure we visualize people from all over the world, all walks of life, all economic backgrounds, all gender preferences and orientations, and all uh, political ideologies, and all religions, all countries are all there. Everyone, including ourselves. And because I'm a pacifist of sorts, I like to put nations that are at war with each other next to each other. So in hopes that they can feel the loving kindness. And then there was something like this. Any wall we have. the world opening to you just as you are. May you all welcome whatever arises.
thank you for that. Allowing me to sneak in a loving kindness for you all here. <laughs> so sneaky. <laughs> My favorite part of the presentation. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll take a pause here. And then I do have a mental story, but if there are, I'll take questions too. But we'll take a, take a break, uh, get up and stretch, and we'll come back for Q&A. Uh,